Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Welcome to the first 2014 edition of the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists with Richard Hollingham, Sue Nelson and our special guest, the world's most famous astronaut, Chris Hadfield. Woohoo! More than 20 million people have now watched Chris Hadfield's gravity-defying version of Space Oddity, recorded during his six-month command of the International Space Station last year. And in a moment, you'll hear Commander Hadfield talking about everything from fixing a space toilet to musicians in space. The one word everyone uses to describe Chris Hadfield is inspirational. He managed to reach a far wider audience than almost any astronaut since the Apollo days, such as these children from Campsbourne School in Haringey, North London, who sang with him at a recent Canadian High Commission reception. I think he's amazing and he's got a very good voice. Why do you think he's amazing? Because he's done so much with his life. He's gone out in space, he's survived. Unlike some spacecrafts which have crashed, he's sung a song in space and he's come back successfully. My name's Ainara and I think that Chris Hartsfield is really cool because he went in space and sang a song there. It's really amazing that somebody can do that. I think he's a very cool person. Why is that? Because he's been up to space, and in space there's no gravity, which is cool. My name's Laurel, and I think he's really um, influential, and um, it's amazing what he's done. My name's Cheyenne, and I think that like Chris Hadfield is like an amazing, inspiring person to, to other people, and I think it's really cool that he went up in space and just sang that song. And it's not that easy when you're in space and you have you have to do work, but, like, you also have really nothing to do at the end of the day. It's really cool. I think he's done so well in his life and he's um, been so su- successful. Has it made you want to be an astronaut? Yeah, a bit. Just a bit? Yeah. Get back soon. 
astronaut Chris Hadfield singing with children from Campsbourne School in Haringey. We met up with Commander Hadfield in a basement room at the BBC and after the obligatory selfies, which you can see on our Facebook page, we asked him to introduce himself. Hi, this is uh, Chris Hadfield, recently back from a long voyage. I was on this trip. Now, if we could start this uh, with a question. I asked our 13-year-old son, what questions would you ask Chris Hadfield? And he came up with a number, but I think this is a great one. His first question was, what do you miss about not being in space? What do you miss about space? You know, I, I try and never miss anything. Like, I mean, I, don't, I spend very little of my life looking backwards. Uh, there's so much great stuff going on right now, and there's so many challenges and interesting things coming in the future. I, I'm just sort of proud of what's happened, and not. I really don't miss it. I, I, we worked really hard. I flew in space three times. I, I uh, filled the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth every single time, and and so I came back from space just feeling tremendously satisfied with the whole experience, and it's like building a. I don't think the the upper reaches of a wall miss the lower reaches of the wall. That's just a foundation that lets you get to where you are. So I I don't actually spend any time reminiscing and missing. Not to me. even about the view, because well, I can it, imagine it's you part not of missing me. the toilet. Yeah, but the, I, view. I, I, the view is internalized. The view is now part of me. The view is something that, that became who I am. The view is... Uh, the view is is in my head all the time, so I don't miss it. It's now uh, part of a great way for me to appreciate the world. Can I ask you about the toilets? Then there's one incident <laughs> you <laughs> there's one incident you describe in your book where you are fixing a malfunctioning toilet, taking it apart, while at the same time trying to coordinate a spacewalk of two of your colleagues. Just to, to, tell us about that. That was my proudest day in space, in fact. Uh, I was sending Roman and uh, Pavel, Roman Romanenka and Pavel Vinogradov, out on their uh, spacewalk, which is very painstaking, and, um, and the consequences of mistake can be really bad. So you have to be really dogmatic and careful. And and you do it in Russian, of course, because you're talking to cosmonauts, but also you're talking to mission control in Moscow. They're specialists down there. So it's a very um, mentally demanding time. Well, just before they got ready for their spacewalk, the toilet died in the American segment. And I was the only guy there to fix it. Everyone else was uh, was either in a part of the space station that was blocked off for the spacewalk or they were doing an experiment they couldn't extract themselves from. So I, if I didn't fix the toilet, it wasn't getting fixed, and that's not a good way. To, you need a toilet whether you want it or not. So I, would, I was taking the whole toilet apart. I was elbows deep in the, in the innards of a, uh, a fairly complex, non-gravity-driven, non-water-driven toilet and rebuilding the uh, separator compressor. And then the Russians would call, so I'd clean up myself and wipe the toilet off me and then go whipping down to the other end of the station and and talk with the guys and do the next step and clean up the hatches and close up and then back to the toilet and back and forth. It took about three hours. But at the end of three hours, uh, the guys were safely outside. Their suits weren't leaking. We hadn't missed one step in the procedure. Everything was good. And I threw the switch on the wall and the toilet went, which was a great noise to hear. And so it was a... uh, it was for me of all days. That was my my space highlight of six months in the or, in uh, orbiting the world. Is this why your sort of uh, engineering, mechanical engineering background came into its fall? Uh? Well, I grew up on a farm actually, and uh, you know, having to fix a machine on your own is what farmers do. Your tractor breaks at the back of the fields, and 
and all you have is a set of vice grips and a slot screwdriver, and you got to figure out how to make it work again. And so uh, a little practical, um, uh, what my dad would say, thinking with your hands. If you can think with your hands and make things work, that's a really nice trait to have developed. And I think I learned a lot of it, not just as an engineer, but, uh, but growing up on a farm. I don't want to dwell on personal hygiene for the interview, but there was <laughs> one other incident I haven't gone to anyway. There was another incident that you described uh, the amount of exercise you had to take and, and being on the treadmill and doing all this exercise every day to you know, keep fit and make, make sure that when you get back to earth, you're, you're, you can stand up. Right. And you talked about sweat and you had to be really careful that you don't hurt other people with your sweat. Well, Think what happens, anybody who's been on a treadmill or, or an elliptical or lifted for a while or even just stood at the beach in the hot sun and you look down and your sweat actually drips on the ground around you or you, know, or you have to wipe the handlebars off. Well, imagine if it didn't fall down but it flew off your body in all directions depending on which way you flicked your wrist or, or turned your head or you know that little sometimes droplet of nose, the droplet of sweat that's on the tip of your nose. Well, if you turned your head and whipped that at someone across the room, they do not want to be attacked by flying sweat. So you actually float a towel in the air next to you. So it's hovering like a like an attendant jellyfish next to you. And and you regularly grab the towel and just wipe the sweat off your body and then let go of the towel and let it float next to you again because you don't want to get to the point where this this gooey mass of sweat suddenly burps off your body and goes and, and splats onto someone else. The film Gravity, which I know you've, you've seen because I've mm-hmm. seen you comment on it, um, it has, has actually made people who have been really keen to go into space all of their lives yeah. suddenly change their mind. Did you think it represented the risk that's involved with space travel accurately? Uh, Sandra Bullock described the movie as a, uh, an amusement park ride. I thought that was about right. It's not you know, intended to be realistic. It's intended to be provocative and evocative and the visuals are magnificent the visuals do they are better. compare all oh, the visuals at least during a spacewalk are better than any i've ever seen they they invented technology to make those visuals and they were beautiful and and very uh, reminiscent of being out on a spacewalk the storyline is you know it's all hollywood and and it's not supposed to be real you, you didn't know. have george, george clooney on board <laughs> well just you know it's just not supposed to be the character types aren't right what they do isn't right the orbital mechanics don't make sense but so what you know i can watch a batman movie and i'm fine you know or a superman or spider-man it doesn't worry me that web shoots out of someone's wrists i think that's okay so i don't know why it would be any different no it, it's an amusement park ride and uh if you're thinking of being an astronaut that is not a training film it's just entertainment there is, though, a massive amount of training involved in being an astronaut. And given that Soyuz is the only way currently to get to the International Space Station, the number of people, the competition to get that job is immense, isn't it? Well, think if you want to fly to space. Uh, I thought, you know, someday I want to maybe fly a Russian spaceship. Okay. And that's going to be a long time from now. So let's just think about that. Okay, I'm going to fly a Russian spaceship. Well, that, we don't fly it in English. It's a Russian spaceship. All the manuals, all the procedures. Okay, so I need to learn to speak Russian. And, you know, the instructors, the professors, they all so, so I need to take all those classes in Russian. And if I take an interpreter, that's okay. But when I get in the actual spaceship, there's not going to be an interpreter there with me. So uh, I first flew a Russian spaceship in 2012. My first Russian language lesson was in 1993, almost 20 years prior. It took me 19 years 
of uh, anticipation and training just to get to the point where I could competently sit in the Soyuz and operate for hours and hours in 100% Russian. And that's just, you know, I want to fly a Russian spaceship there. I have to, have to learn a whole other language. And we treat medicine the same way and programming the flight control computers and operating the robot arms and doing star fixes and understanding the geology of the Earth. We treat them all with the same level of preparation and respect and training. So it's decades of training to properly be trusted to be one of the few people living on the space station. But right from the, the first pages of your book, you've spent your life training effectively or pre- preparing to be an astronaut, which I like. <laughs> I like that singleness of, of well, vision. Well, I count myself hugely lucky. I, I, I love learning things. Um, I, I thought a long time ago, when someone offers to teach you something for free, take them up on it. You know, you're going to learn something and then you'll have more skills. And uh, you never know when those skills are going to come in handy. When I was a teenager, I was in a program called Air Cadets. Great program to teach you to fly. But I also used to uh, shoot uh, rifles competitively on a range indoors, just learning how to very carefully aim something and control your breathing to try and hit a target. When I was docking with the Russian space station Mir 25 years later, we use a handheld laser to try and measure the distance between the two vehicles, absolutely critical for distance and speed. And it's exactly the same. And I never thought when I was learning as an air cadet to handle a a 22 rifle that what I was really training for was to dock two spaceships together. When someone offers to teach you something, take them up on it. Keep training and learning things your whole life. And uh, I'm now finished as being an astronaut, 35 years with the government, and I want to go back to school. You know, there's so many things I want to learn, all different. Kind, there's so much stuff in the world that I'm still an ignoramus about that, uh, that I, I just want to keep studying. To be an astronaut, then, the amount of, the amount of training, you say you've been training from the, the earliest days, and you talk about you know, fixing the machinery on the farm and how that helped you fix the toilet. Yeah. Is that always going to be the case? Are we under some sort of illusion that actually there will be a time when we can all go into space? I, uh, I, I tend to lead my life that way. In the book, I, I, you know, I call it um, visualizing failure. That's how I lead my life. I don't visualize success because if success happens, then that's great. If it doesn't happen, which is normally the case, normally things break or don't go right, how are you going to deal with that to get where you want to be? That's what life is all about. How are you going to deal with the things that go wrong? And if, if you're just counting on good looks, then maybe that'll carry you sometimes. But a lot of the time, you're going to end up um, making a mistake or being nervous or being scared or, or dropping the ball because you just weren't ready. So I just spend my life getting ready. And that's what I think education is. It's just getting ready to do things better, having more tools available. If you have a toolbox, why would you get a toolbox and only stick two tools in it if you can continually fill it? You know, it, And plus, you, before I learned Russian, I didn't really enjoy being in Russia. But once I could speak the language, it's a fascinating place, so deep and cultural and interesting. And I kind of view everything that way. Once you learn the tool that lets you unlock that particular door, life becomes richer. So I'm not going to stop now that I've uh, you know, flown in space three times. I suppose my question was really whether the rest of us can be astronauts or whether we have to th- accept that it's going to take superhuman effort to, to get there. I suppose uh, with all the commercial space flight happening, all you have to do nowadays is pay enough money and you can be a passenger. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, let's go to... I'm not superhuman. I'm human. Absolutely <laughs> human. I, I just, you know, 
rather than okay, not not particularly <laughs> impressive. <laughs> right. But you have to be, you know, you're single-minded and driven right. a lot of luck along the way. But sure. what I'm saying is, is it possible for the rest of us to be astronauts? And will we become astronauts if we spend, you know, enormous sums of money? Will well, that make us astronauts? It's sort of like saying, uh, can you fly an airplane? Uh, the people that are sitting up front on uh, British Airways or whatever that are that are the captain of a big airliner with three or four hundred people in the back that 's a very highly trained person, and he or she has spent a lot of the years of their life getting their skills but they 're just another person on the airplane, and there are hundreds of people in the back, and everybody is going flying together. Space flight will be like that where there are people that have spent their whole lives getting the skills to be trusted to operate the spaceship. But there will be, just like there are air travelers, there will be space travelers. And you could, everyone's sort of an astronaut, I guess, depending, you know, you have to figure out what the right words are now. If you've orbited the world in a spaceship, that makes you an astronaut. But it's, your role is kind of up to you. It's and, more like a space tourist, really, isn't well, it? Or a space traveler, yeah. you know, like an air traveler. Space right? commuter, yeah. even. <laughs> yeah, and eventually there will be space travelers. And so far you had to have been phenomenally wealthy on the order of uh, $35 million to go ride on the Soyuz. Soon, I think, Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic will be able to take people up for the price of a really high-end luxury car, you know, a Bentley or, or whatever. Uh, but but there are lots of people buy Bentleys. It's, you know, not everybody, but there are lots of them around. So that's getting into the range where a private citizen can fly in space. They're not going to be controlling the vehicle, but they're going to get the experience of weightlessness and seeing the world. And that's a really important first step. And I think it answers your question. Yes, we have to get there somehow. And I think uh, I have huge respect for Sir Richard and and his company for being the ones who are forging this first step, because that's what we have to do to go to the step after that and the step after that. I wonder, though, whether people will be as inspired as they were by you just doing a music video, (laughs) singing in um, our son, for instance, when he saw it, he was just wow. And he's surrounded with space stuff because of ours. Um, That was an important part for outreach and education. Did you always have that in mind, or was it something that crept up on you? Because I know your son was very instrumental in helping you. Well, I've always wanted to share the experience every way that I could. Whatever technology was on board, I just did my best to to share it because it's way too good an experience to keep to yourself. But that actually the recording the song Space Oddity was was not planned at all. That was was a, a weekend project I did as a favor to my son. And uh, it just, he did such a wonderful job of editing the video. The Canadian Space Agency approved all that video in a big hurry. We got permission from Bowie himself. And over a week, my son and a friend of his put together that video, just sort of like a father-son thing. And he released it uh, just privately. And that, that one YouTube that he released has been seen almost 20 million times. And with rebroadcasts, it's it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of times around the world that people have did you have, have to do retakes? <laughs> I recorded uh, the vocal track. Uh, I think I did two takes of the vocal track. And then um, for the video, I just I just held the camera and floated around singing the song about, you know, one Saturday afternoon, you know, and just sent all the video to the ground. And then they pieced it together into uh, different sections of the station and did a magnificent job. And I think it's, it's important to look at because it ties together the fantasy and imagination of exploration and the rest of the universe with the reality of the fact that we're actually doing it. It's not just a song. It's not a soundstage. It's not a special effect. This is a a beautiful, iconic song and the feeling of space travel, but actually 
done in space by a regular person who's actually up there. And I think that combination makes it sort of um, hypnotic a little bit to look at. And, and I think hundreds of millions of people found it the same way. Does it help, do you think, that you're Canadian rather than American or, or European? Did that almost being a neutral out there that gave it the global appeal, perhaps, than, that an American astronaut would not have? Uh, I was NASA's director in Russia, amazingly enough. I don't even work for NASA. You know, I'm a Canadian. I work for the Canadian Space Agency. But they loaned me to NASA, and NASA trusted me enough to be NASA's director in Russia. And I found that to be a great position because I wasn't an American, so the Russians would talk to me differently, and I wasn't a Russian, and the Americans would talk to me differently. I, Canada is geographically in between the United States and Russia, but it's also sort of temperamentally and uh, philosophically and politically in between the two. And so I really count myself hugely lucky to be a Canadian in that position. And I think for a song like that, it um, it emphasized the fact that this was just a person up there singing. This isn't. I'm not a rock star. I'm not. I'm not representing some big glitzy thing. All I did was uh, do my best to make a version of a great song uh, in a place that that really uh, shows the song off to its best advantage. And I think that was a little bit contagious, also. I have to say though that. Um you are now, along with William Shatner, my favorite Canadians. <laughs> and I know William Shatner now. You which are is so lucky. Yeah, he's, he's a really interesting man. I mean, he's 82 now, but what a fascinating thing he's been doing for the last 15 years of his life. And, and, uh, but too scared to go into space, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah, perhaps. But, uh, but I, I, I'm getting to know him, which is a real delight, because, of course, I just uh, idolized him as a kid with us Captain James Tiberius Kirk. You know, he was superhuman, and he was a comic book character. But as a human being, the, the real man behind that is really interesting and thoughtful and, a, and uh, philanthropic, doing lots of good things for a lot of good causes. I have big respect for him. Given the, the reach of that, that video and how far it went round, and, and also what you did with social media and everything, does it suggest that actually what we need is some artists and musicians and writers in space rather than you know straight down the line astronauts we need people who can articulate the wonder of it all well right now it is right at the edge of our ability to safely fly in space and uh it's really difficult to take someone up who isn't qualified because if a person isn't qualified that means someone else has to be taking care of them so to have one person who's unqualified basically takes a qualified astronaut out of the mix and that's that's a big trade-off to make you know and and so we we're just making it safe enough now that maybe we can start to fly people who have minimal training but the space station is a huge complex place uh I agree with you completely. We need to fly the people, you know, the artists of the world, the Elton Johns of the world, who can decade after decade write wonderful artistic interpretations of life that help us all appreciate it better. Imagine if we flew Bowie on the space station, what he would have come up with. But, but it's, you know, we can't kill people in the process. And right now it's really hard. But uh, there are lots of astronauts who are musicians. There are astronauts who are artists. And uh, for now, we're just trying to make do. Eventually, hopefully through what Richard Branson is doing and the things that will follow, uh, we will be able to open it up to people who have all different other skill sets that will help bring it even more firmly into the culture of the world. 
So ideally, you want a musician who can fix the toilet. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the other way around. Yes. Commander Chris Hadfield, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Really nice to talk with you both. And tell your, your son hello from me. We will. Thanks. Commander Chris Hadfield. And uh, you won't be surprised to hear that he was really nice. He was. It was a real pleasure, actually, to... Inspiring is the word everybody is. But what I liked about him was he was down to earth he looked forward and i love the fact that at the beginning of that interview he didn't he he looked forward to things he was going to do as opposed to sort of i suppose resting on his laurels effectively well that's really interesting because i've spoken to a lot of the apollo moonwalkers the moonwalkers in particular and a lot of them had a meltdown after they came back from the moon because it was that thing oh i've been to the moon i've walked on the lunar surface what am i going to do next and several of them really struggled with that but chris hadfield he's just going to do something else and he'll do it really well i don't know whether that means he's the sort of current lot are made of sterner stuff or maybe it's just become more routine or um, more within someone's reach because in the 60s becoming an astronaut yes it was a childhood dream for for millions of children but your chances of becoming one were extremely low and now although they're still low for most people they're much much higher look at these competitions that you can apply for look at the chances of getting into you've now got european space agency uk space agency so actually it's more obtainable i think now and maybe that means astronauts are a bit more rounded i was going to say he's a bit more grounded Mm. anyway we'll put some pictures of us and our new best friend chris (laughs) on our facebook page and we'll tweet them as well do let us know what you think about that interview and we do promise to update for 2014 the spaceboffins.com website congratulations by the way to gillian finity she's one of the 1000 people shortlisted to go to mars through that mars one um, call out that came uh, at the beginning of 2013 out of a staggering 200,000 entries. Hopefully we'll be hearing from Gillian in person soon. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. In partnership with The Naked Scientists, we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, ABSL Space Products, and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We'll be back next month with more from The Final Frontier. Thanks for listening and stay classy, Space Boffins. Astronaut Chris Hadfield returning from his command of the International Space Station. Chris was the first Canadian commander of a spacecraft, wrapping up a historic 144 days on board the station.